How did you fund the game? Uh, I had, uh, as a programmer in the uh-huh. game industry, yeah. when you were pulling all-nighters and you don't have time for it to have a life, <laughs> all of that money Just ends up going into a bank, bank account yeah, yeah, sure. and you don't have time to spend it. Yeah, yeah. Hi, everybody. This is Soren Johnson, and you are listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, we are talking to independent game developer Andy Schatz. Andy is the founder of Pocket Watch Games and is best known for his work on Monaco and Tooth and Tail. This episode was recorded March 23rd, 2018. All right, well, so what I usually start with is, what's the first video game that you remember? The first video game that I remember was uh, my parents came home from Japan and they brought me a Nintendo handheld before Nintendo. I I don't remember what they're called, but there's these little Nintendo handhelds. It was a Popeye game. Okay. um, Where you uh, you have to catch the, the cans of spinach. Okay. Um, that are like flying Fuck. overhead. Right. Uh, and, and I was obsessed with that thing. Really? Um, okay. As little kids are, I got way too good at this repetitive little arcade game. Right. How old um, was you then? Uh, I would have been in preschool, kindergarten, right. Right. something okay. like that. And then my dad shortly thereafter got a Commodore 64. So right. I okay. spent a lot of time with Frogger yep. um, in the early days of Commodore 64 and then ended up, you know, through the whole... Commodore 64 Evolution played all the Ultima games and, right. and you know, everything through through Commodore 64. Yeah, okay. I had Commodore 64, too. Yeah, so that was my... it, those are the, the classics. There was a lot, of ga- a lot of good games on that system. Um, what were you, I mean, what were the games you were most into? Like Ultima series or something else? Or Yeah, I mean, I, I still say that Ultima 4 is probably the biggest reason why I'm a game developer. Okay. Um, I used to go... I, on the way home from, well, you, you know, Ultimate Four, there, yep. it's the you're the avatar, and you're trying to had you, perfect the eight virtues. Had you played any sort of CRPG before that? Uh, I don't. Well, I definitely we, we I played Ultimate Three with my dad. These okay. are all games I played with my dad when okay. I, was, I was pretty young. Okay. Um, and I remember with Ultimate Three, I I think Ultimate Three had dungeons. Um, I was I would sit with the graph paper and draw the maps okay. while my dad controlled nice. the character. And I played, I know we played Bard's Tale and all the, the old, like, um, Eye of the Beholder and all that stuff, but I don't remember if that predated Ultima 4 or not. Right. Um, uh, yeah, I think Bard's Tale came out sort of that. I mean, it's just interesting. Ultima 4 is, like, known for, like, kind of being against type. Yeah, right. right. So it's kind of because curious. it's not about killing the big bad guy, although in the end, I think it actually kind of was. Was, but, right. <laughs> but the main point was that you are trying to perfect the eight virtues. Right. And it's, it's, what is it, honor, valor, wisdom, honesty, humility. Um, I, well, that's pretty I'm good missing, for... I'm missing a few more. Yeah. <laughs> for, um, the, how long has it been? <laughs> uh, and I go to, that was, I think I was in first grade. And I mm. would, on the way home, I would be walking home from first grade and I would rate myself and how well I did in each of the eight virtues. During that day? Of that, for that day. Wow. Okay. Um, Video and, games. Yeah, video games, seriously. <laughs> and to me, that's like, th- that is the ultimate uh, example of someone using video games, you know, for good in their life. Right. Um, or, or 
I don't even want to say for good. Have video games having an effect upon someone sure. in a, in a in a in a deep way, right? Um, and uh, there's other games that I think that I respect more mechanically and all sorts of things like that. But um, but that's probably the seminal game for me in in my my okay. growth because it stood out for you so much thematically. Yeah, yeah. It 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 was more than it, it was more than just a sort of a, a mental task. Yeah, it was something. Um, it was something where where it became a part of me as a person, right? Um, rather than just an activity or a hobby, right? Um, and uh, yeah, it's interesting because like, um, when no, I'm gonna dive right into this. That's fine. That's fine. Let's do it. <laughs> when when people there's the whole argument about whether or not video games can cause violence, and right. and um, you know, all of us video game people say, well, of course not. The studies show that they don't. Right. Um. But at the same time, I don't want to step away from the fact that video games can be deeply affecting. Right. And if they can be deeply affecting for positive reasons, I also believe that a video game can be a deeply effect deeply affecting for negative reasons as well. I yeah. think that I think that it's important to recognize that art is art is important to people. It can change you. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so whether or not that means that we have a responsibility as an industry to to protect crazy people from being changed by our art. I, that's a, that's another discussion entirely, but I don't want to ever deny the power of the art form that we take part, you know, that we, we build. Yeah. It's always been a tricky thing, right? Because it seems like there are a lot of people basically want it both ways. Right. right. And they'll yeah. often say those things very closely together, you know, mm -hmm. without kind of thinking about <laughs> the link. Right. And, you know, ultimately it's, you know, you can't, you can't, like try to control you shouldn't try to control video games you shouldn't try to control art right that's ultimately the answer right like right. like yeah and art can affect people right and sometimes in weird ways but like what are we going to do like what, what do we feel about culture mm -hmm. and like the answer to that question should be the same for video games as right. it is for everything else does taxi drivers say enough meaningful things sure. about our society um or does that even matter is it is it okay for it to not even say a meaning thing be meaningful thing about the society and maybe even inspire someone to do do harm to someone yeah um is is that okay in fact it, it's probably what the answer is is that the the depressing effects of regulation upon art are just not worth the protections that they offer yeah right yeah um, um, i mean that's basically because you just can't control you know, it, things aren't A leads to B, right? Like, right. you know, it's not, it's just not that simple. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's a very good example, obviously, right? Um, and, uh, um, yeah, and it's strange because, like, I mean, in, in many ways, there isn't actually a video game that, that has that obvious of a correlation, right? With what? Like, there was a piece of, like, with Taxi Driver, right? That, sure. That right. led to, like, an, well, I mean, led to is the wrong word, right? But it's, like, linked with an assassination mm -hmm. or, you know, a murder. Um, and, you know, with video games, it's more of just this kind of general moral panic, right? Of like, you know, it's, it's okay. I, I'm going to sound like such a conservative and everyone's <laughs> going to hate me for this because I'm not, I'm super liberal, but I'm also such a, I, I'm, I trying to be, you know, eyes wide open right. about, about this. I mean, I do believe that the Columbine kids were partially inspired the format in which they decided to yeah. do what they did had to at least be partially inspired by the games they were playing. Right. They they play a lot of first person shooters. And I tell you what, I remember when I was in high school, when I played was playing a lot of Doom, I was peeking around corners too. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And and like I I I don't 
like like I said, I don't think that that regulating our industry is is a good idea because it's just not worth what it would do to our art form. But at the same time, like like if we're being really really honest, right? When when we when when we make games about about shooting people, um, yeah. No, I, what do you I, no, think I you've think, got in someone's head? Yeah, <laughs> no, I, mean, I think that's I think that's true. Probably. Um, I mean, it's it's hard to deny that whatever was wrong with them, it manifested in a fantasy base that was you know heavily encouraged by the games they were playing. Right. Right. I mean, it's hard not to fabricate, <laughs> and it's hard. It, frankly, it's hard not to look at the timeline. Right. Mm-hmm. Like Doom was mid nineties. Right. Mm-hmm. Pre Doom, right. these. I mean. There were obviously games where you shot a bunch of people, but like it just didn't feel sure. the same way. Well, right? chess doesn't inspire people to <laughs> go conquer people yeah. or go kill a king or yeah. something like that. That just doesn't. It's not the same thing. But when yeah. we're talking about, well, uh, even like a game like Contra, right? Like it's right. still different from like you're running around the first person. You're like, well, the fact of the matter is, you know, playing playing tag or whatever it is that by itself also probably inspires our ability to commit crimes in some manner right it's it's practice yeah. for for running away from people yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. so uh, you you can't say that that video games are unique in that regard yeah. i think the hard part is like as game developers like we don't know how to solve these issues no. right like we really don't <laughs> like that's not what we're doing and uh i mean i think it's it's good that we think about it um but i yeah i'm hard pressed to know exactly what yeah. You know, what we should do it about is a society. Yeah. Right. Fair enough. I yeah. agree. All right. Well, <laughs> got into it quick. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, now, like three quarters of the audience just turned it off. you like, shut this guy up. Is this? Um, all right. Well, I am curious though. Like, so Ultima, you know, with Ultima 4, um, the way the virtues actually played out though, it's one thing to say like the game's about this thing, sure. right? Like at some level he was doing that. Like explicitly, I'm making a game about this, but what does that actually mean? How does it actually play out? Right? Mm-hmm. They had like the quiz right early on that right. you go through, mm-hmm. but like presumably, like what part of the gameplay actually like gave you that feeling where you know you were a kid and you were thinking about the virtues? Like how did the game reinforce that? So well, like it meant that it if, meant that much to you. Uh, most of the virtues, the things you had to do in order to perfect them or something, uh-huh. or something like that, involved. Um, uh, I would describe them as puzzles, usually right. involving NPCs. Um, right. There were a few of the virtues that didn't. Valor just meant you could never run away from an enemy. But there were also some puzzles involved in Valor. Um, honor, I think, was something where you couldn't attack um, uh, neutral NPCs or something along those lines. Right. Um, but again, there were some, some NPC-based puzzles or quests yeah. um, involved there. Um, and I was young enough to to that some of these things were like words that I was learning for the first sure, time. Sure, right. Um, so it was it was really sticking in my head. Um, right. And uh, um, and yeah, when you when you're a, a lot of little boys, or I'm sure little girls too, have this feeling of like when you're young, you you feel invincible. You feel like you can do anything. You can be that hero that can dodge a bullet or right. something along those lines. And so you you. Um, when you when you're young, it's really easy to to have uh, heroic characters as as role models and to think to yourself, well, one day I'm going to be that that thing. Sure. Right. Um, and so there was definitely a sense of like, um, it's an interesting game too because the avatar in the Ultima games is very isolated. He's not part of the society. Right. 
Um, okay. He doesn't come from that society. He comes from our world, and then he's thrust into right. the Britannia. Yeah, it seemed like kind of a his attempt to like bridge the gap between like the player and the character, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. if if he did that, then you could imagine you're the character more than if it was just like a random. Right, and well, and that's what the the quiz at the beginning. You know, you go into the gypsy right. cart or the the wagon, and she asks the questions, which allows you to to start off from the perspective of like how would you approach these moral questions um to me that's actually everyone talks about gordon freeman as the as the perfect cipher and and to me he's not because he doesn't there there are really aren't decisions being made in that role Mm -hmm. um you know i look at a game like ultima 4 and um now ultima 4 you can't the only true role play in which you are really deciding to do one thing versus another thing is actually just in the quiz at the beginning right because in order to progress in the game you actually have to do you know the single solution to all right. the puzzles it's not like fallout where it's everything is moral yeah. gray area and you can do this or that and it just depends on what you think right um uh but um but i i think i really liked that that role play um uh it's nice to have the role play the games start with a true role play where you where you can answer these questions where there is no right answer um mm-hmm. it just defines who you are right um and then it moves into the the portion of the game that it, in order to progress it's linear in a sense yeah. um but you've already invested yourself into who this character yeah. is i mean he put he did that at the right time i mean it's hard to make a game where like that would happen over the course of the game right like right. he was still working within his genre basically right mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. Uh, i'm curious though like with all those puzzles like that game is actually fairly difficult in terms of like trying to figure out all the stuff because yep. you have to talk to a lot of random characters and there's like little hidden doors and like you know, you have to like you basically have to like scour the whole world for every single clue, right? Right, and like you you said you were you playing this with your dad still? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I think I think five was the first one I played by myself. Okay, and were you guys were you guys able to like get through the world on your own? Yeah, or like... we did it all. We okay. did it all. We we I know we used hint books for like some of the Infocom games, but we definitely didn't do any hints for the Ultima games. Okay. Um, and you completed the whole game? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. I, mean, I think after that, um, I went back and I might have gone back and played Ultima 1 and 2 by myself at that point. Right. And then I went and then Ultima 5 came out and I played that by myself. Too. Right. Okay. Cool. Was your dad into video games a lot? Or? Yeah. I mean, uh, enough. He was a techie, a techie right. dude. He he learned to program and, and ran his own consultancy with, with programs that he made. Mm-hmm. Um. He even played a lot of World of, My mom even played a lot of World of Warcraft. Oh, really? Awesome. Both, yeah, my sister, my mom, my sister's partner, and my dad and I were all playing World of Warcraft at the same time. in Vanilla. Vanilla right. WoW yeah. when it first came out. Right. Yeah. Um, which was kind of hilarious. Okay. You would play together? or like? Yeah. That's, yeah. That's, yeah. That's I was the awesome. first to drop out because I, <laughs> right. I was like, I can't. This is too much. Can't keep up. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. That's cool. Um, okay, so were video games like a very big part of your life then growing up? Or? Yeah, for sure. Um, at first, you know, it was like my my sister, my dad, and I played a lot together. And my sister and I would play, you know, Impossible Mission and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And play a lot of summer games and winter games, yep. all those epics games. Yep. Um, and, uh, um, and then... Did you do any programming? Like the yeah, C64 I think I, really kind of like encourage you to exactly like in fact my my mom got me i think probably when i was five or six got me a book where you could just transcribe code mm-hmm. and you can make a little a ski slalom game right. for skiing 
You know, and it's just you just use the left and right arrow keys and as an ASCII character goes Okay, sure, on. yeah, I totally can picture those games, right? right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was the first I ever did, um, mm-hmm. the first game, and, and I was hooked. Uh, at some point, um, I started working in BASIC, I think, when we got our first PC, uh-huh. and I made my own original game. Um, okay. And that was a, like, two-player, essentially dual-stick shooter. Really? Um, with, like... Two characters were little wizards, and they were there was a skeleton that would chase you around, and you could shoot. Okay, had um, you played Robotron? I hadn't, but yeah, uh, uh, I eventually got addicted to Robot. We had a Robotron machine at a at a company I worked for, right? Uh, much much later on. But Did you just come up with that control scheme on your own, or I don't know, <laughs> you don't I, remember? I, maybe. Yeah, I, I have no idea. Wow, I have no idea. Yeah, and the, the first like two or three games I made on my own were were awesome and it's because i kept my ambition small hmm. and then once i once i got like once i was in high school uh-huh. and i'd made a pretty big game i made like a warlords-esque game which was like a turn-based rpg strategy-ish it's mostly strategy is a turn-based strategy um uh where you can explore and find a town and conquer it and then you can hire up troops and it was a hot seat game so my 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 family and I would play it together. Um, wow, that's, I mean that sounds pretty. Yeah, cool. it was, I, yeah, I made that in junior high, I think. How long did it take Servants you? of Darkness. I think it took me six months or something like wow. that, and I recorded okay. voices for it and everything. Oh my and, gosh! Yeah, Jeez. it was it was pretty cool. Um, and that was the last game I think I finished until I became a professional game designer, right? Uh, or a professional game developer, and it's because I got ambitious. And every time, I, my favorite thing about Minecraft is mm-hmm. the fact that. It was a turning point in hearing when kids would tell me they wanted to make games. Right. Prior to Minecraft, there was a like eight year period where kids would say, I want to make games. How do I make Halo? Yeah. After sure. Minecraft, they say, How do I make games? I want to make Minecraft. Minecraft right. And I'm like, you know what? You can make Minecraft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and but if when they were saying they want to make Halo. It was just no, out, it, totally out there. It's not going to make Halo. Yeah, I, I think one of the best things about Minecraft is that like it makes it okay for like video games to be ugly, mm-hmm. right? You know, it's like and they, simple. They, they like, can just be totally blocky and crazy, and like it's not you know, you know the the presentation is not supposed to be the primary thing. And the mechanics are really boiled down to little atomic interactions, right? right. In Halo, there is a, a sort of a very textured tapestry of. Everything that is happening in that moment in time matters. Uh-huh. Whereas in Minecraft, what matters is what is the block in front of you? What is it, you know, does it have any effects and what happens when you punch it? Right. You know, or what happened? And, and that's a very, it's a, it's, it's a world built of atoms and mm-hmm. the atomic interactions are actually really simple. Right. Um, which is attractive from a game designer standpoint. Um, but it also makes it something that is really easy to to to. Um, it's a really great way to introduce people to game design uh-huh. um, because you're just asking them to 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 build a, a one dimensional toy, right? Um, and then build another one dimensional toy that hopefully has an interaction with that one. And right. Then, yeah. And then once you have enough one dimensional toys, you have a system. Right. Right. Yeah. Wow. Well, let's actually. I'd I'd like to hear more about this game you made when you're in junior high. So, no, sure. Um, just because it's, I don't know, it just sounds more involved than like the projects I normally hear of at that age. Like you wrote it, so you wrote it in basic? Yeah, I I think it was, it was either, it might have been even visual basic. The, right. Or, um, gosh, what was, there was an early language that no one's using anymore. Um, I, 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 
think it was basic, but I, I really I couldn't say. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it doesn't it's matter. tile based, right? I it mean, had it, a, it had a procedurally generated world. Okay. Um, was this? I mean, had, what type of games were you like? Was Civ out at this point? Did you play games like that before? Or like, I don't know. It, you know, we'd have to look up Warlords because uh-huh. um, it was definitely it was based. It was you had played on you played Warlords and you were kind yeah. of trying to make a game like that. Yeah, right? and it, so it was a procedurally generated world in which uh-huh. there were towns connected by roads. Okay, and if you uh, conquer the town, it was like a checkpoint and it would give you income. Okay. And then you could spend that income to each town also had a particular type of unit that you could recruit from that town. Okay. And so, so um, would you have a, like a you'd walk- start with a couple of troops uh-huh. and you would, and you'd use them to, to explore mm-hmm. the world. And then you'd run across a town. I think he's probably started with a town. Right. I, um, and then you come across new towns that were neutral and you'd have to attack them to take them over, which would give you income and a new uh, was um, there like a separate battle or were you just like you kind of hit the town and that was it was yeah it went to a new little screen wow, that had okay. a little like a little chess um, game or thing i don't i don't think like there that. was mechanics to it i think it was probably it was civ like um oh, okay. and that it was just like you know an auto um, the battle automatically occurred um and then and then once you used up all your you know the movement for all of your troops you know hot, and that goes to the next hot seat right um and eventually the idea is to take over the whole the whole world right um, and you you made all the art for it too and like yeah i did all the stuff. art yeah the procedural generation was an interesting one because that was one where i was really having to um uh invent how because i didn't have any reference for how procedural generation was done um and it it was it's become pretty formative for me to how i've typically approached procedural generation um which is to um, you know, just essentially just, um, iterate over, you know, the, the basic function is to select a circle, a, ran- a circle with a random center and a random radius and raise that circle uh-huh. up by one, um, you know, one elevation or, or possibly raise it up in a hill shape. Okay. Right. And then do that again and do it again and do it again mm-hmm. and do it again and do it 10,000 times and then normalize the elevation. Okay. Um, and that's how you get your random maps. And that's how I get my random maps. And it, and it ends up with a nice, you know, you end up with a nice sort of fractal basis. Yeah. Is um, that for everything? Like how you put down forests and stuff like that? Or like- yep. Yep. So you can just do that and then just pick a threshold for what, you know, where the forests would go. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, um, and then you can do it in reverse too. So you can, you, you, you uh-huh. know, you, uh, make, you holes or whatever. Make holes. Uh, and then once you're done, you know, you can, um, you can erode, erode the ground. You can pick what types of rock are forming different areas. So some, some are more susceptible to erosion, um, et cetera. Um, and then, and, and I'm still even for tooth and tail, um, I still even use a lot of those, a lot of similar functions, um, to, to that. Huh. So how did your family react? Because if my like seventh grade or whatever, like maintain the like, like the focus to do this like six month project that yeah. actually, you know, like was a functioning game at the end of it. Like, I don't, I, I'm not sure what I'd say, but like, I'd be impressed and maybe even be like, maybe like, I don't know. I don't know what I would do, but yeah, I mean, I think they were impressed. I don't think it was, it was, I've never once questioned what I should do. I've never, no one ever has ever asked me what I should do when uh-huh. I was a kid. I just. It was the thing I did. Right. And I'm incredibly lucky in that regard because most people in their lives have to go through that period of time when they're becoming an adult to be like, what should I do with my life? Uh-huh. Um, and that was never even a question. I was already doing it. 
Right. Did um, you, I mean, if someone asked you, would you say you wanted to be, make video games? Is that at like... At some point, yeah, once I started thinking about it, probably. But like at that age, though? Is that what you would have said? Or I think so, probably. Okay. Yeah, I think so. Um, it was pretty early on in the games industry in general to be making a decision right. like what, that. But... Would this been, have been like 90... Yeah, junior high would have been. Uh, I went to high school in '92, so I was in junior high '90-'91, something okay. like that. Right. Um, so. Um, yeah, it's funny because like five years earlier, if you had done something like this, you actually probably could have sold it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, seriously. Like you're you're kind of at the tail end of when that's possible, but like yeah, like five years earlier, like um, I interviewed even Brian Reynolds, and he did something kind of, not like this, but another thing like this, and he sold it to a magazine because that's what you could do right. five to ten years earlier, right? Right, right. Um, whereas, you know, even even though the industry was small, it was still to the level where, like, that was not really possible anymore, right? Yep. Um, I remember in college making a, um, a, a little game with a, my college roommate. We were trying to make – we loved real-time strategy, and that's uh -huh. really where Tooth & Tail comes from is playing okay. real-time strategy and playing – you know, red alert in the dorm rooms with, with my buddy. Right. He and I separately prototyped another game that we called Dino Drop, which was a top-down two-player split-screen real-time strategy game with indirect control over your units. Hmm. You'd have a palette of different types of dinosaurs that, you know, Q&E um, would cycle between. Spacebar uh -huh. would drop an egg of that type. They had different costs based upon the size of the dinosaur and different amounts of time to hatch. Once it hatched, you had little to no control over what the dinosaur did, but the idea was that, you know, you're trying to take over the other guy's land. Right. But we made a separate game that was a, um, like a... I think huh, it was that's interesting you were experimenting with, like, no control back then. Yeah. Like, I mean, there was a reason why you ultimately did it for Tooth and Tail, right? Mm -hmm. Like, to, like, because, like, the gamepad, right? But, like, back then, I guess it was just you thought it was cool, or I don't know. I mean, like... Yeah, I think the idea, the reason we wanted to do it back then is... Um, we couldn't do network programming and okay. we wanted to make a real-time strategy game that we could play against each other, but you can't have, you couldn't have two mice. Yeah. At so that it had to be on time. the same screen. It had to be on the same screen. So, um, so that was our way to design around the problem. Right. Um, oh. Yeah. We were, we were also worked on a tactical, um, we were working on a tactical um, uh, RTS, like a myth style, but with mechs. Mm -hmm. um, and it was way too big a game for us, but we did actually send it, off or we sent off like the pitch with screenshots and stuff to Broderbund or something really? like that and actually okay. got a response which really? for, for a kid of this you know something, something in the mid 90s I was 19 right? years old or yeah, 20 yeah. years old or something like that that yeah, was yeah. pretty exciting okay and um, were you were you programming in like C at this point or like ah uh, it might have been C okay. I don't remember it might have it right. probably was. Yeah, I All right, well, let's back up a little bit. So yeah, you're, sure. in, you're in middle school. You did this this project. But yeah. then you said you didn't really make games for a while. No, I did make games. I just never finished any of them. You never finished them. Okay. And because it was the Halo problem yes. of, like, games were getting better. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to make games like the ones I was playing. Okay. And So what were you trying to make? Uh, well, I was trying to make a real-time strategy game. Right. I tried to make one with my dad when I was in high school mm -hmm. that was a side-scrolling real-time strategy game with... <laughs> Uh, where you could dig under the ground. So it was all underground. It was called uh -huh. the underground. And the idea was that you're digging tunnels into the other person's territory. And then I wanted to have like realistic um, water flow and lava flow and things like that. So you could like, so you could flood the enemy's yeah. base with, you know, with whatever. Um, and uh, um, sort of ant farm style, yep. you know. Exactly. Um, I can picture that, yeah. 
But you can also picture the fact that, you know, for a high school sophomore with not really any real programming experience, it starts to get pretty hard. Right, sure. At that point. Um, Because it was real time. And, um, you know, we're talking physics and all sorts of crazy stuff. I mean, how were you drying the stuff at that point? Like... It was still all just sprites. I think I was doing it was it was tile based flow you know flow simulation, but um, uh, but yeah, not even close, not even close to finishing that. Right. Um, That's the one I remember. I know there were a couple others that I I tried and failed on, but um, but yeah, there was that period of time where it was just like, let's see, it would have been. it would have been those early, the early '90s years, right? '95. What, what was '95? Was a big year. It was it XCOM? And yeah, I feel like Doom came out. Doom was it '94, '95? Anyway, yeah, around it, that time, I think Doom was '95. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, the the '90s, like the '90s, things really accelerated, like from '95 to the yeah. end of the decade. Right? And XCOM was, was would have been right basically there. one guy, right? Yeah. And that's the yep. amazing thing that that it, it was one guy but one brilliant guy sure yeah you know, yeah, that, yeah. That did you play XCOM at that time mm-hmm. yeah okay and, and did you it. did it's you one know of my, it? it's one of my like it's also probably it's in my top four most important games to me as a designer really so, okay how yeah. come uh the emergent storytelling um mm-hmm. that i remember i had one character his name was chuck bryant okay he was my i pictured him like a um you know, he's John McLean to me. No. <laughs> um, and he was a grenade th- He was a throwing expert. Okay. Um, he was my best guy. We got into the final base, spoiler alert, mm-hmm. um, fighting our way through. Everyone else is getting picked off one by one by one. We finally get into that final room where there's the brain and he's got no ammo left. Mm-hmm. Um, and, he, or he's, and he's out, he's basically out of action points. And so... I was like, well, I know this isn't going to work. It's not going to do anything, but I threw my gun. Right. And two of those, two of the aliens come in from behind uh-huh. on, on their turn. And I'm like, damn, I have to redo the whole thing. And Chuck's going to die. And this is awful. Mm-hmm. And they come in from behind and they auto shoot, which uh-huh. does three shots. Right. The first shot hits Chuck. Yeah. He's still standing. The second shot hits him. <laughs> He falls. The third shot goes over his head and uh-huh. hits the brain and destroys it. Oh, wow. And there's the like, there's the the cutscene of you know of my hero running out of the base as everything explodes. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> like, okay, sure. Yeah, so, I'll paper over the middle. Of yeah, the right. And uh, and and the hilarious thing is, you know, the the XCOM reboot. Um, similarly, like I just I got really invested in my my characters. I I had a. a you know, a, a guy with like a handlebar mustache named Cadillac Jones and he dies. But then I recruited another guy that I named Pontiac Jones and it was his son. And that guy ends up being like the guy who re- who takes, you know, who avenges his father. Right. Um, and yeah. uh, well, it's a pretty amazing moment that you can. What is that? 25 years later, you can recount like yeah. how you finished that game. Right. Yep. Like that's, you yep. know, that's pretty remarkable. So so that yeah, that that emergent storytelling is something that like is still the Holy Grail like all of the super popular indie games on Steam involve some sense of, you know, some, or some, I don't want to say all, but many, many of them are emergent storytelling devices. Right. Um, yeah. All right. Cool. So, um, so yeah, X King, were you aware that it was made up, made by like one guy? No, not at the time. Okay. Certainly. Okay. No. So you're, you know, you're going through high school, you know, college is coming up. You, you know, you know, you were thinking like you, love to make video games but like 
did you have a plan? Like, what did you decide to do? Like, where did you go to school? And like, what were you, what were you <laughs> yeah. trying to do for that? Uh, so I went to Amherst College. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think at that point I knew I wanted to make video games because my, um, the summer before I went to college, I got an internship working. This was been 96. Uh-huh. And I got an internship working for, and like one of the very earliest internet gaming portals. Oh, okay. Which... So I was writing. It's called Netplay. They don't. They don't. Yeah, yeah. They, they didn't last all that long. Um, but I was writing like checkers programs in Shockwave. Okay. Um, I even wrote like an uh, ad animation software that predated Flash, but it was like basically doing what Flash did. Eventually. I think Flash was out. It was like the first version of Flash was out, but everyone was still using Shockwave. Right. Because the plugin was was more um, uh, prevalent. Yeah. Um, and uh um so i was making games professionally for the first time yep. then um and then um i spent my first year of college and i asked my parents i i'm, I'm a lucky guy i i they've you know i've i've never actually worked a game that wasn't in game or i've never worked a job that wasn't in games okay wow all right um i asked my parents if They'd be okay with me taking a summer off to make games. Uh-huh. Um, and after your first year? After my first year. Okay. With my college roommate. Um, so okay. he and I were really into it. Um, and they said yes. Um, and that was my first time experiencing complete paralysis of like, you have freedom and right. I got nothing done. <laughs> um, and and that was that was a big downside or that was a, a big downer for me. And that, I think that experience made me shelve things for a little while. Okay. Um, although the next was, summer I did, I, th- I believe the next summer I did go and get an internship. Um, no, that's true. Not true. I, I got, I, I had an internship just writing software the next summer. Okay. The summer after that, I got an internship at Presto studios as a level designer on star Trek hidden evil in, in San Diego. Okay. Um, and then I got a job after after I graduated college, um, writing games for a marketing company. It was like a viral marketing company, mm-hmm. but they hired me to make little games for them. What did you study in college? Did you study computer science or something? Yeah, or? I was a computer science, fine arts double major. Um, oh, okay. So I kind of you were you were preparing yourself. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it was very clear to me that this was like, and and I do. I think the art degree, even though I don't, I'm, you know, I'm not a production artist by any stretch right. of the imagination. I think the art degree is probably more important to me than my computer science degree because the computer science was all theoretical stuff. Right. And you had already, but you already learned how to program mm-hmm. anyway, right? Yep. So. And so the the stuff that I use in yeah, I do. and and also academic computer science doesn't doesn't really touch the stuff we do in games. Maybe it does now, but it didn't then. Yeah. Um. Well, especially if you're a gameplay programmer, basically, mm-hmm. you right. know, like it's, you know, I, yeah. There I, was a really cool class I took in machine learning, right. in which the professor set up a uh, um, a uh, system where he, we could write dummy AIs that, that you could teach them the rules of checkers, but you couldn't teach them the strategies. You could only teach them how to learn the strategies. Okay. And so he he had actually had a nightly tournament that ran the entire semester, and and half your grade was based on your position on the ladder. No, oh, that's cool. By the end, and uh, I ended up becoming a better checkers player just by watching my AI learn. Oh, it learned right. Um, okay, that's cool. And it's a good thing I did well on that side of it because on the 
the actual academic side of the machine learning course. I yeah. bombed it badly. Yeah. No, I understand. I went through a computer science degree and like, I'm sure it was good for me to go through, you know, data structures and operating sure. systems and compilers, but it's, it's pretty hard to draw a direct yeah. <laughs> to draw a direct really. line. Yeah. Um, so, but the visual arts, uh, what, I assume this was, was this still pre-digital? Yeah, basically? yeah, it, okay. it was. Although I ended up sort of um, infusing at least some elements of, of passion for how math can be art into some of my uh, mm-hmm. um, some of my courses, like making fractal art and stuff like that. And and you know, I like to argue that the um, that art is a, a combination of creation and observation. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, photography is in many ways is, is much stronger on the observational side of, of it. There is, there are, there are aspects of creation, mm-hmm. but there's also um, a lot of it is just identifying beauty yeah, and sure. then finding a way to capture it. Um, and, and I'd argue that, that the capturing of that, the observational aspect of knowing what beauty is mm-hmm. is uh, is as important as the ability to move the paintbrush with skill okay um in fact maybe even more important mm-hmm. um and so if that's true then can we just take you know can we take fractals and and say they're art and i remember having some ar- arguments with stodgy old school fine arts professors and the subject. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, it's especially true of digital art, because even if you had learned digital art at the time, the technology would be totally right. different 10 times over, you know, by now. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, cool. So you got yourself your, <laughs> I want to make games, double degree. Yeah. And uh, you got to, okay, wait, so where are you working at? Oh, well, uh, Bouncer. Was your, was your so, uh, so NetPlay was before college, yeah. and then I went to Presto, Presto Studios. Right. Then I went to a, a viral marketing company called E-Tractions. I ended up making a, a, probably the most uh, the most well-known thing I made from there. It went viral after I left the company. It was mm-hmm. a little Christmas snow globe with little characters inside that had their own AI. And they'd walk around and they'd throw snowballs and they'd go ice skating and build a snowman. And once the, once they built the snowman, the snowman would eat the guy that okay. did it. And then you could pick up the snow globe and you could shake it and they would scream and and... You know, the snow would fly everywhere, but they would all ah, screaming. Um, And this went viral well after I left the company. But this was also still in that vein of like, hey, I'm experimenting with autonomous characters, with Mm -hmm. with the idea of like um, being able to just not be able to directly influence what what the characters are doing, but indirectly influence them. Right. um, Which is something that's really kind of carried through pretty much all of my other stuff, Um, even Monaco to some extent. Um, Mm the world is really alive um, and you're you as a character actually have a very um, minor effect you're 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 living within the world but the world is um, is the is the active uh, antagonist right hmm. okay did you I mean did you apply though like like to like larger game companies like uh, so presto was presto was best known for the journeyman project they right. made and they made um so they made Mist Three Journeyman Project. Yeah. Uh, the, my internship was on a Star Trek game. Yep. Uh, when I graduated, the reason I went and worked for that marketing company is it was the year two thousand, and it was the middle of the dot com boom. Yeah. And okay. I was like, if I should go and try, I See should what? go and spend two years trying to be rich. <laughs> this is <laughs> something was, is happening. Yeah. I'll see what I can do. Yeah. 
And but then I was like, I just want to make games. Yeah. So I left and I went back to Presto and became an AI engineer. Um, and also ended up writing the the front end code for the very first um, online console game for the original Xbox Live. It was a game called Whacked. Um, so okay. I wrote Bot AI for. I remember the name. But... Yeah, it was a arena um, combat game. Came out just before Halo did. Okay. Um, and um, it was a it was a game that I think that the development team was really passionate. It was one of those games where the development team loved playing it. Uh-huh. There's some big names that were on that. Like Dan Paladin was an animator on that oh, project. Oh, really? Okay. Was it, um, uh, you say Arena Combat, was it like a shooter or a fighter or like what was Sort it? of a, it was 3D. Yeah. Um, this was before the Halo control scheme. So it was okay. on, so the controls were left analog stick to move. And then I think the, what, the triggers to, to rotate the camera. Hmm. Um, yeah. Everyone's trying to figure it out. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and, um, uh, and then like a couple of buttons for strafing because you couldn't strafe without, you can't really strafe without a yep. dual analog, right? Yep. Um, and then an attack I button forget, and, a, did and the, a jump button. Was there a dual analog on the gamepad at that time or not? Yeah, because I there think was? that was the original Xbox right, that Halo yeah. came out. Because Halo would have had yeah. for Halo, okay. You guys, yeah. it just, yeah. It was two triggers. Something? It was two triggers. There's a white and a black button. Yeah, I remember those, the tiny buttons. Yeah. Oh, man. And then uh, <laughs> four face buttons. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and um, uh, so yeah, it was a it was a really fun, wacky arena game where you you could pick up all the characters were all based on like the seven deadly sins. So there was like, um, there sloth was literally a guy asleep in 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 his bed with his arm hanging over the edge, <laughs> and the and the bed ran around like a horse. Okay. <laughs> um, and uh, anger or rage or whatever it is is was a um a like swearing cussing bunny that had all of his um uh his arms cut off in a in a lucky rabbit's foot company wow. so he had like bandages bandaged up arms and he was he had a scottish accent and he was, would cuss, so cuss was, up a storm. Was, was dan heavily involved in the art design of this yeah yeah because yeah this, this seems like it was all very sense. dan yeah <laughs> um he wasn't the lead the lead animator um is a guy named mike brown that went off to to high moon which is what rockstar these days so he's an art director there yeah. um uh michael saladino was the lead programmer he's now like in charge of almost i don't know what what level he is but he's like one of the top tech guys at riot um it's there's a lot of big it was a you know 35 person company where that just seemed to be an incubator for a whole bunch of talent Hmm. um and then um and you wrote the ai for the bots is that what you said yeah i took over the ai for the bots there was some work done on it at the start and then i took it over so i wrote I wrote bot AI, um, and then I ended up writing the um, all of the the matchmaking, the online stuff, basically. Right. Um, and uh, um, yeah, it was the first the first game to ship with right. Xbox Live. Um, uh, did so you did cool. you really enjoy it, or like how did you how was your I mean, experience? It was an like? experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was I was being I even they they asked me to design it to literally even do the UI design, which okay. was like crazy for you know i was i was only 23 and it was i'd had intern i'd had an internship in the game industry but not a real job um oh i forgot about that i i even interviewed at at bungie in 98 when halo was still a like 
distant camera, mm-hmm. top down, like you could jump in a in a car and drive. It looked like a little micro machine. You could drive around the environment. And oh, really? Um, I and never, I never do that. Yeah, I was. A, that Halo was in development for a long time. Right. Yeah, yeah. And in the early, early days, it was not a first person shooter. It was the camera was was detached and and quite high up mm. in the sky, and it was more I think dual stick shootery. Huh. Um, so, and then when you went to interior spaces, I think it, the camera dropped down to an over-the-shoulder camera, something right. along those lines, and then it would come way up when you got into the one of the dune buggies. Um, but um, yeah, so that was Presto. Um, it was published by Microsoft. They had us on contract to do another game. Mm-hmm. This the Sims had come out, and and everyone was trying to figure out how to make a Sims killer. Sure. Which was weird because no one's ever made a Sims killer. No, no, no one, not even close. And they stopped trying pretty yeah, shortly after they that. They stopped trying, which is kind of funny to me because I still think it's actually possible. Like, why yeah. hasn't anyone actually competed with the Sims? Well, I think the general reason why. I mean, now I don't know. Now the market's just kind of different. Like, sure. I mean, okay. even the Sims isn't really the Sims, right? So I'm not really sure. I mean, I actually re- have no idea. Like, I've kind of lost track. Is it the Sims four or five now? Oh, God, I, don't, I have no idea. I have no, no and idea. Is it doing really well? I'm not sure. But like, <laughs> obviously, it's still selling. I, yeah, it's I, like the second best selling game franchise yeah, of all but, time. Yeah, but there was a 15 year run there where it was just like a colossus, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah, for sure, like no one really bothered trying to compete with them. I and mean, they people did. They were contracting us to try and figure it out, and we got canceled. That's what right. Trying to well, no, no one ever. Well, anyway, no one ever no one, did figure never it out. Ever did figure <laughs> yeah. it out. <laughs> but I mean, I I really kind of felt like a big part of the reason why was I think that was still the period, which I guess is maybe this is always will be the period, but it wasn't the favorite game of like game developers. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah. Like they, it was one of the first examples of like making a game for a different audience than yourselves. Right. I mean, to some extent, like that was one of the things that made Maxis great is they had, they had a lot more diversity than a lot of other game companies. Right. So they were able to like find success with games that like were, didn't, weren't coming from the typical game developer. Right, but I mean, I think it was just that simple, right? Like, game developers weren't excited to work on like mm-hmm. a Sims knockoff, right? So, yeah. Um, yeah. But anyway, so you guys tried to do something. Yeah, we tried to do something, but we kind of went off the rails, and and it ended up in a something. That, it was pretty clear, I think, after the fact that Microsoft wanted a pretty much a rip off, and we tried to get like for creative console for, for the console, the, yeah, the Xbox, okay. yeah. And and we ended up getting canceled, and 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 the company had run out of money because Wacked hadn't done well, and it was it was back that was back in the days when the the publisher developer relationships yep. were very parasitic, and, yep. and you if you didn't have work, you were dead. Yeah. Um. So ended up going to a place called TKO Software, which grew very quickly and was a complete shit show. Okay. Um, Where is all this? This is up in Santa Cruz. Yeah, Presto okay. was down in San Diego. Okay. Um. Right, but so we ended moved. up doing contract work for EA, and I was during the, I was there like during I was doing contract work with EA during the EA spouse days, and okay. so working. Had on you my, applied at a bunch of places, and this was just like, yeah. How, how did you I, end up choosing this place? Basically, I I think I had an offer from um, uh, Pandemic, mm-hmm. and this place was a it was a startup mm-hmm. that I would have been the thirteenth person. They had a couple of fairly talented big names there. And it looked like they were going to grow fast. And the CEO seemed like the kind of guy, I was still pretty young. Right. And I was attracted to the idea that this was a CEO that was like a business guy. And he was going to make things happen one way or another. Because I had come from Presto where I loved Presto. I loved the talent. Mm -hmm. But the, um, 
it was not approached in that like cutthroat, let's build a business way. It was, mm-hmm. it, it was what I now believe I want and we all want, which is like, hey, let's make a cool game company to make cool games. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but at that point in my career, I was, I had seen, I had seen the results of that and mm-hmm. felt like that was a road to failure. Right. Um, and so I found this like startup that recruited me. I'd, I'd worked through a recruiter. And um, so I was deciding between going to a pretty big place, a pandemic, uh-huh. where I was going to be a smaller cog yep. versus this place where I was going to be somewhat of a big shot and and see some rapid growth. And right. that's pretty much exactly what happened. I actually, the, I've got a senior programmer that I'm working with now. He just reached out to me. Um, recently um, that I worked with back at this company um, and uh, he was he's like a year younger than me and was also another one of these like sort of hotshot whiz kid kids that Uh they brought in right Um, but the whole thing was just a giant messy disaster Um, but between EA kind of harvesting contractors and and leaving them for dead but also the TKO management itself was not Good. So why was it such a disaster? Like, um, what were they doing? I, I'm hesitant to say, to describe the depths of how bad things went, because because as I understand it, illegal stuff happened. Okay, all right. But I don't think anyone, I don't think that it ever, it which was the reason that it ended up, I don't know about illegal or, or what, but... The, the board of directors shut the company down. Okay. Wow. Because of bad stuff happening. Okay. But I I don't think any of that ever really sort of went public. Okay. Um, and um, I left. I ended up leaving the company. I I remember pulling like multiple all nighters while it, like they pulled us down to EALA to like finish up Goldeneye Rogue Agent, mm. which was which was not. Goldeneye. This is a Goldeneye Rogue Agent, yeah, which was a, yeah. You don't know it because it's like <laughs> notoriously, it, maybe not notoriously enough, but it's bad. Okay. And we dragged that thing across the finish line, and at that time, I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna quit. I'm gonna apply to business schools, uh-huh. and I'm gonna go to business school, and I'm gonna come back, and I'm gonna change the industry. <laughs> <laughs> That's me with my fists in the air, being yeah. like, I'm gonna start my own company i'm gonna change everything right um so i applied to like four top flight wow entrepreneurial a, business schools this is a strange turn yeah um, most i don't i don't i'm trying to think of anyone else in who was in your sort of like position at that time would have, the decision they would have made is like i'm gonna go to business school like that's it was i i really felt like i wanted to start my own company, company. because it was in that period of time. This was in 2004 or so uh-huh. when the mid-sized developers were all dying. Right. All dying. Well, um, I guess that's kind of what I'm getting at. Like, it's not clear. You go to business school. I kind of thought it was a way to get a, get out of the wreckage of the game industry for a little while and uh-huh. come back to it when things were healthy again. So did you think you were going to do other type of businesses? No, no. I was going to come back to games. And you would, start a, you, started, you would start a game company? Yeah, I would start a game company. But like... Back then was like one of the hardest times 
ever. Right. But I was, that's why I was like, I'll go away for three years and come back and maybe things things will change. Things will change. Some company will magically come up with a digital or distribution I platform. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> that's that's yeah. all I, I need mean, to happen. Literally, that's the year Steam came out. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. No problem. Um, all right. Well, so somehow the timing worked out. Yeah. But, uh, but so I, I applied to these business schools yeah. and I figured I got nine months before I'll start classes. I'll make a game in the meantime and I'll try and sell it. Because this is then this is before Steam or right when Steam just came out, but it was only for Half-Life 2. And, but it was during the start of digital distribution and the casual game portals. Right. So I was like, I'll make a game that I can sell in the casual game portals, which will give me experience even while I'm in business school. Right. Um, and in like four months into this, I'm like having a lot of luck making this game. I even, I went to a little conference. I was making it in Torque, which was yep. a predecessor to Unity in some ways. Yep. Um, and I'd gone to a little conference and... A, a, a journalist from Business Week uh, interviewed me and ended up writing an article about, hey, there's these people doing this thing called indie games. <laughs> and that the week that it published was the week when all four of the business schools rejected me. Oh. Um, but I was like, I guess I don't really need them. I'll just make my game. Make my game, yeah. <laughs> and I made the game and, and I even got it into retail and it was in Walmart and Target and we sold a bunch, we sold like, I don't know, 100,000 uh, copies, 80,000 copies okay, or something okay, like that. Okay, all right, back so that's, up here. That's, that's how I went indie. <laughs> all right, let's back up there a little bit. That's, that's some fast forwarding right there. Okay, so what game were you, What game did you make? That was a game called Wildlife Tycoon Venture Africa. Okay. Made it in 2005. It was actually nominated for the grand prize of the IGF in 2006. Okay. Um, it lost to Darwinia. Okay, um, all right. That, that year, um, Ryan Clark... It, he had a game in it called Professor Fizzwizzle. He's mm-hmm. the guy that has brace you, owns Brace Yourself Games, the yes. Crypto mm-hmm. uh, the Necrodancer. Um, that was the year that w- the Witness won the design, not the Witness, uh, <laughs> Braid won the design award um, okay. as a prototype. As a prototype, right. As a prototype. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah, these were the real early indie days. Alien so Hominid, like, I think, yep, was that year. Yep. So like just the very first stuff. That, yeah, Darwinia is like a classic of like one of the mm-hmm. very first ones that was kind of like commercially viable. Right. So was... Would Darwinia have been on Steam at that point? Was that possible? No, Darwinia was sold we just strictly through, through, their, the through, their, through their through their website, website. basically. Okay. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. All right. And you were making how many people? How many people did you have? Other people helping you, or you? Yeah, yourself? I had. I had. I think four or five other people that helped me out. Someone, uh, a woman that helped me out with the graphic design, mm-hmm. uh, um, an animator, a modeler, um, a musician. Mm-hmm. And that might have been it. How did you fund the game? Uh, I had, uh, as a programmer in the uh-huh. game industry, yeah. when you were pulling all-nighters and you don't have time for to have a life, <laughs> all of that money ends Just up going into a bank, bank account yeah, yeah, and sure. you don't have time to spend it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sounds like my first few years out of college. But yeah. yeah. So, um, uh, so I just had a, a, I had my little bankroll. Okay. Um, and and wow. I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, all, I also should acknowledge that I came from a an upper middle class family right. that kept me comfortable right. and, you know, gave me some money to when I left college and like, you know, so you knew, those you, you, things, knew you had a safety net. So it wasn't yeah. like there wasn't some worst case scenario right. that you were terrified about. Exactly. So, yeah, when I decided to go indie, I did move back to where I grew up in San yeah. Diego because I figure, well, I'm not going to have the money to travel at sure. the very least. So 
all of my old high school friends will at least come back for Christmas and I'll get to see them, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, but, uh, all right. So you move in here. You didn't literally move back in with your parents. Not even with my parents. Okay. No, I, I found a little, <laughs> not found quite a little that extreme, but yeah. it was something similar. Yeah. No. <laughs> okay. So you, you moved back to San Diego and right. you started making the game. How did you find the people to make the game with you? They were all people I'd, I, that you worked outside with? of, uh, their, um, Okay, so I'd worked with um, uh, one of the guys at TKO Software, uh-huh. one of the guys at Presto Studios, uh, the the graphic designer woman I'd worked with at the marketing company, uh-huh. musician I found I think just online, right? And then I worked, and then uh, Adam DeGrandis was a guy that I met through forums for through. Sure. Uh, he did some art for. The okay, game. and how did you how did you choose that this was like going to be the game to make? Yeah, it was, I actually had a process for it. Um, and it's not dissimilar to a process I still follow, um, which is the first and foremost, I wanted to make a game that I wanted to make. Mm-hmm. So this was an ecosystem sim game okay. with autonomous animals. Okay. And like that dino drop game that I described, you had a palette of different animal types. Mm-hmm. You had a currency that went up just by itself over time and uh-huh. the different animals would cost different amounts to drop them into the world and then once they were in the world they were largely autonomous okay but then they would follow the behaviors of that particular animal and they'd form you know they'd have relationships and they would have babies if they were satisfied with their food and water and each of the different species had different behaviors etc right um but uh at the time uh there were a lot of weird constraints mm-hmm. um first of all you had to have your your game because in the early days of digital dist- distribution, well, download well, size mattered. Just one second. Sure. Were there game mechanics layered on top of that, or was it largely just like a software toy sim type thing? There were game mechanics. You, The idea was that to beat a level, you had to... Um, so, uh, to beat a level, you had to, to have an a ecosystem of X number of a particular species. Mm-hmm alive in the world at once. Okay. And so in later to... levels, you had to have, uh, you know, over a threshold of two different species. Okay. So in order to get population new, target. Yeah. In order to get new food sources to place into the world, you had cycles, um, which were basically the other animals, any of the mm-hmm. other animal choices. And, and so you were trying to grow the animal populations um, in a way that was stable so they wouldn't collapse um, because those numbers, they would get harder and harder and harder. Right. Um, and, uh, but what I was looking at at the time is um, Zoo Tycoon had been really popular, sure. but it didn't have any competitors. And, it, and Lemonade, Lemonade and that was in the, the, like, that was in the retail space. Yeah. There was a Lemonade Tycoon game that had been very popular on, in, the, in the casual portals. Yeah. But there were no other Tycoon games um, in, on the download, in the downloadable space. Mm-hmm. So I figured take the animal stuff from the you know the popular retail game yeah combine it with this mechanic that seems like there's a strong market for but isn't saturated in the casual space because at this time everyone was making bejeweled clones right um and find a way to squeeze it down to less than 20 megabytes um okay and um it, it did it did well I, my instinct does tend to be to reinvent things. I like to reinvent things. Mm-hmm. And I, so I was never really made out for the casual game market. Market, right. Um, I, but, well, it's interesting, though, because you you definitely were thinking in business terms. I was, I think a lot yeah. of people, you know, when yeah. they, they strike out, they're like, oh, I'm going to outdo. I'm going to 
you know, make a better version or do something based off of the game I love to play and that I'm totally crazy about. Like, that, and that's literally the one thing that I generally try and stay away from. Okay. I, I, I do try and stay away from building games that are evolution, evolutionary or an evolution of something else that I already like. Yeah, yeah. But even then, you didn't make some, like, bizarro RTS, right? Like, you made a tycoon game. I did, That yeah. you felt like was a, had, had market fit. Right? It, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, and but I don't want to. I like that was the process. I would never ever would have made a game that I did wasn't interested in both building and playing. Sure. Um, okay. So, yeah. um, you know, I like a lot of different types of games, but uh-huh. but determining what game I was going to make, I wanted to make. I I approach it from the perspective of can this thing sell? What does it fit within the market in right. its current state? And there were a lot of weird limitations, and and the market was. You know, I was not the target market for casual games. Right. Um, and so finding a genre that that would fit that space um, left me with pretty limited options. Right. Um, so, um, and of course, you could have been the introversion people and just be making weird shit weird from the beginning. And somehow, yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it seems like this telling this is this is just sort of like something about you and the way you approach games, I guess. Um yeah, I think so. Um, I but at the same time, like if you actually went back and played it, and, and in fact, we're gonna be we're we're planning on re-releasing these games on Steam, just sell them for a dollar because I still have people asking if huh. they can download them somewhere. All right, that's cool. Um, and I mean, I, that might, I'm literally going to make a tra- the trailer is going literally gonna have me talking over it, being like, just so you guys know, <laughs> if you're expecting this to be an awesome Pocket Watch games game, right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> buyer beware. <laughs> But hey, if you like animals and right. you like tiny little sim games and you have a dollar to spend and a few hours to spare, or you have a kid who likes these kinds of things, you might like it. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um Okay. But yeah, if you went back and you played it right now, you wouldn't be like, oh, that's a that is a tycoon game. It doesn't have that like, you know, block off this area yeah. for residential and that it's area not for commercial. Management. It's not yeah. And in fact, that's one of the biggest struggles I've had because I've tried to evolve the idea of an ecosystem sim game. Mm-hmm. But one of the biggest challenges I have is that most sim games have um, some metric for determining whether or not you're succeeding. Yeah. And then a currency that you're given in reward, which then you can use to try and build a bigger, more complex system that will offer continued larger rewards. Right. Sure. Um and the problem is that ecosystems don't have input output in the same way that currency based systems do. Right. They, they the, an ecosystem just is. It's not supposed to scale. <laughs> it, it, yeah, That's and you it. can you can take the idea of like I'll start with a small ecosystem and try and build the biggest ecosystem I can. Mm-hmm. But what is the metric for determining what is a healthy ecosystem for which you should be rewarded? Right. As opposed and, to just I somehow was able to cram a lot of animals. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, what is the currency? If you if you're if you're not coming at it from the perspective of a zookeeper, but instead you're coming at it from the perspective of this is a wild ecosystem with mm-hmm. autonomous animals. Um, what is the currency that you have to offer the player? And on top of that, these animals are mobile, which means that space and spatial constraints are a lot looser um, mm-hmm. than they are in something like a SimCity. Right. Um, and uh, so it's a real challenge. Um, I, I try to address these in future Sims. So I made a Venture Arctic. I tried and it totally flopped. It was the next version. Uh-huh. I, I, 
And I tried to reinvent the whole concept based around, uh, I did some research on like what drives Arctic ecosystems and how is that different from African ecosystems. Uh-huh. And it, and what I decided was that the main thing that mattered is that it should be a, it should be okay for animals to die because okay. how, because how can you make an Arctic ecosystem sim game where you punish the player for animals dying? They're going to die. Yeah. And then secondly, um, season, seasons really matter in the Arctic. Sure. That, and so the idea of like winter being a season of death and spring being a season of rebirth was mm-hmm. something I really wanted to build the game around. I think Diner Dash had just come out. So I tried to build these like weird like um, player time management things into uh, where you had to make decisions about what you wanted to spend your time doing because time was going to progress without you. Mm-hmm. And then when animals died, you could collect their souls and that soul was the currency that you could use to build new things. Right. Um, so I tried to address it interestingly there. It wasn't a fun game. It's not, it's not a fun game. It's an interesting game, mm-hmm. uh, but it's not fun. Uh, I tried to make a dinosaur one that I ended up canceling after like eight months of working on it. Uh-huh. And the dinosaur one, so, I have uh, tried several times for on the, that one. For the Arctic one, do you, you yeah. think that it failed because like, like the game what like, didn't work as well as the other one? Or was it that like... Partly. The, the topic, part both, people, yeah, yeah both, both yeah, okay. yeah. Because I, I I didn't make these games for kids, but as you can imagine, sure. they sold best to kids. Yeah. Um, also, between Africa and Arctic, that's when the PC retail space died. Mm. It 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 walked three steps, fell over, and yeah. was just dead. Right. Yeah. I remember when it just completely disappeared. It's like there's like no way to buy a PC game anymore. Yeah. And that was like 2000, <laughs> 2007, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, how did you even, how did you get in retail though? Like... I worked with a publisher called Mumbo Jumbo. Okay. And, um, and this was also kind of interesting because Venture Africa, um, it, I, I sold the rights to Mumbo Jumbo. They got it into Target. They got it into Walmart. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that retail sales worked then, I don't know how it works now because I haven't sold retail in forever, mm-hmm. is you get back your royalty report um, based on the number of units that the publisher sold to the retail stores. Yeah. The next quarter, you get a report back of the number of retail boxes that they never managed to sell and right. returned to return. the publisher. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And so... When I say that we sold 100,000 units of Venture Africa, that may I think that may be true over its lifetime. Uh-huh. I've been saying that number for a long time. <laughs> the fact of the matter is it's a lie. We sold 100,000 to the stores. Yeah. I think only 40,000 sold through. Okay. Uh, but um, the uh, you know, I remember getting that first royalty report and thinking, "Oh my god, I can really start a game company now." Right. Right, and right, so I, right, I hired right, a guy right. to go make Venture Arctic. Oh, I see. And then wow. three months later, I yeah. got in the next royalty report, and I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And that actually killed my retail deal. That's funny. This Arctic. is like one of the classic things that they would always repeat in like the business tracks at like GC 15 years ago, like sell through and sell in are yep. different. Yeah. <laughs> like, you got to remember that. Um, huh. Okay. Yeah. Um, but were you were you selling it online too? Yeah, but the numbers weren't were nearly as as, not, as okay. big. Um, uh, if you can get at the time, if you could get your game into Target and Walmart, that's right. that's still where the numbers were. Yeah. Um, unless you were Bejeweled, right? But even even Bejeweled was selling in retail. I don't know if it, you know, how well it sold, but right. uh, there was still just the market was still 
getting used to the idea of a digital distribution. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I yeah I went back. Yeah, I even I even tried. Uh, you were saying some of the dino games. Yeah, I was trying cool. to do it again with a dinosaur ecosystem game, mm-hmm. and I, I wanted to build a game about how dinosaurs lived as animals. Dinosaurs are always portrayed as monsters, sure, right. and not as animals. And I wanted a, a game where dinosaurs could pee and have sex and <laughs> like do all the things that animals do. Right. Um, but I was I struggled mightily again with this currency and success problems and how to define those things and. And were you aware of it at the time? Like the mm-hmm. way you, the way you're describing it now sounds like you've thought this through. Like were you aware yeah. of this problem in those terms back then? I was, and I was a big part of it is that like when you're playing Sim City, it's really easy to say the player is the the mayor and the city planner, and yeah. that's that helps to define every Sim game is about the dependent variables and the independent variables, uh-huh. and the player is allowed to touch the independent variables they can change those knobs right they can change the taxes mm-hmm. and then there's a whole bunch of dependent variables that are the that are the outcome yep. of those things right um and you don't have control over those things and and so when you're designing a sim game you need to figure out what are the limitations upon the player and what are the ways in which they're allowed to, to interact with the simulation what are the ways in which they're allowed to break the physical rules of the simulation right right can they literally de- can they demolish a building right or can can you build a building because in SimCity you can there's only certain types of buildings you can build the other ones you can only zone yeah. you can't yeah, choose sure. that this building will be better yeah. yeah right um and so when trying to define who is the player in a game about nature mm-hmm. it was difficult to avoid the concept even for a non-religious guy, uh-huh. that the player is literally God, right. um, or is Mother Nature in uh-huh. some manner, and so I was thinking about like what is what are the things that I want the player to be able to do, and and I was thinking well the, maybe the player should be able to shape land and and uh, um, uh, apply mutations to the animals, but they shouldn't be allowed to move control the animals themselves, okay, because the animals. The animal's success is is the is the dependent variable, right? Um, and so I, I came up with a pretty creative solution, but I've never really figured out how to how to make the whole game work. And that was that the I started thinking about the idea of time as um, if you if you're Mother Nature, you might see time at multiple scales at at once. You mm-hmm. might see the game. You really need the game to be simulated at at normal time scales because mm-hmm. that's that's what's fun to watch yeah but you you also need to be able to affect things at the millennial time scale mm-hmm. and so so the the direction i was going with it was the idea that uh millennia millennia was the currency and you could spend millennia in order to shape the land in the in the ways that only happen on a millennial scale right okay. um and uh and if you went bankrupt mm-hmm. some uh um uh, extinction level event would occur, and then you would be granted a new bank of millennia. Right. Um, so, um, so you could that way you could simulate simulate this world at a you know a normal time scale, but then um, uh, um, but then still still see changes to the world that that would only happen 
on on a millennial right. scale. And there was a currency that made sense, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But it's easy to think about. It's design at a meta level is stupidly easy. Yeah. <laughs> it's the it's the low level mechanics and making it really fun that's right. the hard part. Yeah, yeah, it's that happens a lot where you're like, oh, it's this is gonna work. It totally makes sense in my mind, yeah. right? And yeah. yeah. Um, because I guess I was, I was asking whether you under, like way you described the, these, the sort of core problem with these games, if you understood at the time, because the way you described it made you basically, it seems like your kind of your basic opinion now is like, these games can't really work. It's kind of like the one, the thing I never figured out was the, um, the fuzziness of the spatial, um, stuff. Uh-huh. I never figured out how to make one area matter and to make you know, in SimCity, every single little plot of, of mm-hmm. parkland that you put in, you have intention behind it, mm-hmm. whether it's to make it pretty or, or what. Um, but if you want to simulate ecosystems, you have to simulate it to some extent at a distance. And so mm-hmm. you need to have large numbers of animals. But then the world at a distance, um, you can you could do it like SimEarth did, mm-hmm. um, SimEarth being a Another game that is maybe more interesting than fun. Sure, right. Um, <laughs> yeah. And um, but but if you want that sort of middle ground between where at at the point where it's like you want to see the dinosaurs, yeah. you want to see a T Rex hunting down a you know a Triceratops, even if they don't live at the same time, right. you know. Um, but at the same time, if you're trying to simulate it, if you're trying to simulate ecosystems, you need to be doing it at scale. You need to be doing large numbers of these things. And then the world itself, like, how do you define where that T-Rex has to live? Mm. Or it should be that herd of Triceratops. It can't just be one T-Rex because it's one T-Rex is by itself not a, not any, there's no stability to the right. concept of, of one T-Rex. Right. You have to be dealing with populations of T-Rex. Right. Um, so, yeah, space and, and that idea of, like, um, scale in terms of populations was something that I, I never really figured out because I, I desperately wanted to do both the small scale but simulate at large population level. Now, I, I kind of, I don't know, this is sort of hot in my head, but like, I feel like you're making a game about like, you know, African animals and dinosaurs, but you're very concerned about the simulation. And I kind of wonder, like, could you just fudged a lot of the simulation stuff and like because I feel probably like yeah there's probably a lot of these people probably. who they just want to see dinosaurs yeah. wander across the map right yeah. like i i think did that you think about that much at all like i yes and no one of the things that i discovered when i was making venture africa is mm-hmm. that anytime that because the goal is that the player wants to make a stable system uh-huh. and then grow that stable system such that it doesn't collapse right right and it's the same thing in SimCity, that you're trying to grow a stable city yeah. such that, you know, crime and fire don't don't just destroy the entire thing. Right. Um, so it's a teetering, you know, it, it you're trying to keep that teeter-totter level right. as you grow it um, and, be, and it becomes more complex. And, and one of the things I found with Venture Africa is that the, my best inspirations for how to add stability to the game always came from going back to the source material and figuring out why is it that two lions don't just kill literally all the zebras. Sure. Right. Um, Because, because if you only use, if you only implement a very simple simulation where Mm -hmm. lions have a particular speed and Mm -hmm. zebras have a particular speed and they breed at a particular rate, 
there's no there's no back and forth to that. You mm-hmm. need a you need a sine wave. The relationship between those two things needs to be a sine wave. Right. Yeah. Um, and you can see that really obviously in nature if you live anywhere where there's coyotes and rabbits. That, right. that the years when there's a lot of rabbits, the mm-hmm. next year there's a lot of coyotes. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so I I. I early on sort of became habituated to the idea of going to the source material to find, um, to find inspiration for how to balance. Right. Um, and maybe I got, maybe I got too, too attached to that. That's, yeah. that's possible. The, but the, it is true that the thing that I never figured out is what is how to make the player activity fun. I, I like to design at the five minutes or the five second scale, the one minute scale, right. the one hour scale and the 10 hour scale. Yeah. Right. And the, the five second scale is the one that's just like, is it fun to just control this game? Yeah. And that's one thing I kind of never really figured out. I was, yeah. well, ultimately, yeah. I mean, they're going to buy it because there's dinosaurs, yeah, but like right. at the end of the day, like they still have to, they got to be doing something. That's fun. Eventually. That yeah. like And venture Arctic is, abjectly not fun <laughs> okay. at the five second scale it's, right. it sucks <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. um okay so did the did you make the dinosaur game because it sounds like i've i i worked on it for like eight months mm-hmm. and then was totally burned out on it and ended up taking a break and trying to and making a venture africa board game oh. just for inspiration okay. came back to dinosaurs tried to reset my brain still couldn't figure it out Went back and made. I ended up so when I was working for TKS. Did TK you Assault, publish the board game? No, no, just, it's just, pretty cool. It's one. a pretty good board. Game. I, I, I did send it to a German board game publisher, and uh-huh. I got a really lengthy um, feedback on it. It was really right. nice of them to to send back sure. as much feedback as they did, and it was. They basically said, um, uh, it was it was an interesting game where you had like you had. Uh, both players had their their crocodiles, their elephants, their rhinos, and their zebras, uh-huh. and um, it played somewhat chess-like. But the board could be different every time. You uh-huh. can reconfigure the board, um, and the terrain mattered. Yep. You know, crocodiles could only move one tile that when they're out of water, and mm-hmm. you know, etc. Um, uh, zebras couldn't be killed if they were next to other zebras because they're yeah. herd they're herd animals, yep. um, and um, uh, but it was a it was a two player game, so somewhat chess like. There was it was completely deterministic, and um, at the time, so this would have been two thousand nine mm-hmm. um, when I got the feedback. They said these one hundred percent deterministic games lead to analysis paralysis, and it's just not where the market is. Um, hmm. and it's interesting that's coming from the, a German publisher because that's actually kind of what. <laughs> Sure. German games are known for, but well, but not entirely deterministic. Yeah, yeah, hard, hard, completely right? sure. Yeah, um, yeah. and uh, and they were right. Um, although yeah. it was fun, it was a fun game. Yeah, um, I still have it in my closet. Yeah. Do you play um, a lot of board games? Is that a big thing for you? Or uh, I, I, I don't want to say yes because I know that what I, the people that do play a lot of board games, I'm not in that. Yeah, okay, I'm right. not in that category. Yeah. Um, but I, I am into the space enough to, you know, my wife and I were, have been playing Fox in the Forest and, and mm-hmm. you know, we, we have, we have a kid and, and yep. not a lot of mental energy at the end of the day. <laughs> sure. sure. Uh, um, so, uh, um, all right. So you, uh, you came back yeah. to the dinosaur game. You couldn't quite, you still couldn't get, still couldn't figure it out. I took another break and I, 
went and decided to make a board game version of this concept that I I'd concepted up before I left TKO Software, mm-hmm. the one that where we were doing the EA stuff and GoldenEye and a yeah. Medal of Honor game and all this stuff. There's a period in between, in between projects where um, we didn't have a contract, and so my boss was like, "Go prototype something, go design uh-huh. something." And I said, "Well, I've got this idea. Is it okay if I own? If the company ever shuts down, I still want to own the concept, yeah. and I'll, but I'll bring it in." And it was this heist game. Okay. It was a cooperative heist game where you got to build a mansion uh-huh. and then other people would come into your mansion and try and steal stuff and you'd go into other people's mansions and try and steal their stuff. This is Castle Doctrine, basically. Yeah, I was about to say, yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And it was called Monaco. Yeah. And uh, so, I, so you know, fast forward right. to, to 2009 um, and I pulled out this old concept and i made a little board game version of it mm-hmm. um which was okay but i couldn't quite figure some stuff out went back to the dinosaur game mm-hmm. tried one more time then i'm like i'm gonna take one more break and do something different and mm-hmm. then i'll come back to the dinosaur game for one last try and if i can't figure it out i've got to go get a job right and so i went and go, took a break uh i i um downloaded xna xna had come out pretty recently right and I was like, I'll just make a little 2D version of the Monaco concept okay. um, without the building aspects, just the stealing parts, did because you that's think, the easy part. Did you think you would want to get to the building part? Yeah, well, maybe. I was just doing it for fun. I was, yeah, okay. just, I was just going to take a week to build yeah. this little thing and learn XNA, which, it was, which the easy, it was the easiest thing to do anyway. Yeah. So. yeah. And after like a day of working on it, the game was already fun. Okay. It was like... And and then after two what did days you build? Work, what did you build in a day? Like what was? Oh, the just a guy part? walking around a maze, picking up coins. And uh-huh. then on the second day, I think I put in the guards that you had to run away from. Okay. Um, and uh, I I built a I wrote the like rogue like visibility algorithm um, that worked in real time. And mm-hmm. so after like two three days, I was like, oh my gosh, this thing's super fun. Right. And after a week, I was like screw the dinosaur game. I'm making this. Right. (laughs) And so, yeah. So after five weeks of working on it, I entered it in the IGF and, and it ended up winning the IGF. I, I 50, I think the build that, that the finalist, that was like the finalist build was the, was a 15 week build. I've been working on for 15 weeks and winning. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure I got randomly assigned Monaco. (laughs) I was, I was one of the judges that year. And in the phase, like before the grand prize, you you, you know, you get randomly assigned like 10 games and yeah, I, you had only worked on that for like 15 weeks. Well, if you, if you played it, then you were playing the like seven week build. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That's amazing. Because to me, it was like head and shoulders above everything else. Like, it was cool. It was it was amazing. Yeah, right? thank, like, you. thank you. <laughs> I can't believe how good it was, especially compared to the you know the. I mean, you know, the, the IGF's wonderful, right? Yeah, you, for sure. You get all sorts of. Yeah, stuff. that was the year with Super Meat Boy and Limbo, and and wow. like, it was a big year. Yeah, things were things were accelerating. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, uh, Joe Danger. Um, yeah, I guess we should at least back up a little. So, what, wait, what year was this exactly? Two thousand ten. Two thousand ten. Okay, so there at this point there were. Like, would this have been post, like, World of Goo, post yes. Braid? Uh, uh, well, Braid won the design award in 2006. Right. But World of Goo and Fez were 2008. Yeah. I'm thinking more, not just the IGF, but, like, had they been commercial successes? World of Goo was. Yeah. Yeah. Was World Braid out? Braid was I, out. Yes. Okay. Braid I guess the main out. thing I'm, I'm saying Castle is, Castle Crashers like, was out, too. Okay, great. So, I guess the main thing I was thinking is, like, 
um, did, were you seeing something where like, oh, there's yeah. a path here? Yeah, I think that's what that I was instantly latched because Castle Crashers and Braid were out. Okay. And everyone was like, XPLA, XPLA, XPLA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because XPLA was Steam before Steam was Steam. Yeah, that's the thing that's easy to forget. That like there was people talk about Steam as the yeah. thing that solved this, but no. real early on it was if you're Xbox looking, Live. Yeah, if you're looking at digital distribution, the 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 history goes Yahoo and Big Fish right. come first, and then XBLA, yeah. and then Steam. Yes. Right. Um and plus your dinosaur concept. I guess you were still that still would have been just like a PC Yeah, I think so. retail game? Uh, I don't know. Probably. I don't know. But retail was like totally I, No, probably downloadable at the time. I was probably thinking downloadable. Yeah. I was I was trying to think I was very attached to the idea that Pocket Watch games would be a brand. Okay. Um and after Monaco, after after I discovered that Monaco was fun, I was like well, I'm making this game about stealing things. I think my kid's audience is going to yeah, be yeah, shot. Yeah. We're, we're, we're taking a left turn. Yeah. Um, okay. Did you, do you remember why you wanted to make a heist game to begin with? Like way back when? Well, I, like I said, I designed it much, much earlier. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but back then, like why is it that it like, was, when, you, when the, your boss I'm, said like take some time and this was like the first game. That I like building things and I like trolling people. Okay. I'm, I'm like the type of, I'm the type of gamer that likes that. I like I love that moment when you get to screw someone over. Okay. Um, and so the idea of like building a fortress and then going out and screwing other people over and then seeing how you get screwed and then trying to, you know, protect against it. Right. Um, like I'm that's that's me to a T. I'm I'm I get that from my mom. I'm also a ruthless card player and okay. takes a great joy in it. Right. <laughs> um so and I've never I'm I'm the type of guy who doesn't mind losing i love losing i okay. just i have take great i'm as far as how i play sports and games and things like that i'm the i'm the coyote um uh -huh. i'm the trickster uh -huh. um i don't mind losing i just enjoy watching people Some squirm yeah. <laughs> yeah um and okay. uh so it wasn't like you're some great heist movie aficionado or something i became one over the course of working um, on it working on it i i did i have always loved heist movies but in particular, the one that I always came back to was actually the Mission Impossible um, TV show. Really? I watched it as a kid a lot. Okay. And I always um, identified with the idea of a small team of nerds Yeah. that their nerdiness sort of gave them superpowers mm -hmm. that kept them separate from society. Right. And I have no idea how you grew up, but I bet you anything you were a nerdy kid too. Pretty nerdy. Yeah. <laughs> and it you was... probably had some nerdy friends <laughs> that didn't feel like you were a part of the... You probably played some D&D. &D. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, probably pretended to be playing D&D &D with foam swords in the backyard. <laughs> and, uh, this is what I did. Yeah. Um, and uh, um, so, so, yeah, I think I really identified with that idea of like... Characters that had special talents that lived a little bit outside of normal society. Okay. Um, and you can see that in Monaco. You know, the, the NPCs are really just like kind of doofy and you, yep. you're far more talented than, than and the NPCs. are. Um, and uh, um, yeah, it was... Uh, um, uh, I have no idea if I got lucky with, with it, but... Um, uh, you yep. know another one that had come out recently that really inspired Monaco. That was Geometry Wars. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was going to ask like, was there a, was there a video game precursor to this at all? 
because it's I'm surprised there actually weren't more heist games because it yeah, doesn't seem like a very there have, there fertile ground. Mm-hmm. Um, this was even before Hotline Miami, so I think the thing that to me was unique about it at the moment was there really weren't top down games being made. Okay, and so that's why Geometry Wars was a influence mm-hmm. on you in that sense, like and and the simplicity of the controls. I, yeah. I get into such a flow state with Geometry Wars, and so I basically ripped off that design or that control scheme for Monaco because there's basically one button and 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 just like Geometry Wars, I like to call that the oh shit button. Uh-huh. And in Monaco, it was originally just the smoke uh, bomb, yeah, right? Okay. So going, getting through a door, you don't have to push a button to go through the door. You just push against the door and a little timer fills up and some characters can go through faster and some go through slower. Yeah. Um, and then when things really go down, you can push the oh shit button. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that was such a weird... This is this is a total aside, but this is just a weird time because I don't... I'm not particularly a fan of twin ship stick shooters. Yeah. But I played a ton of Geometry Wars just because it was like... There was just no experience like that. Mm-hmm. It was like, I'm, I, I was, because there's just so novel to be like, I've got this Xbox, but for some reason, I'm going to enjoy playing this like weird, like trifle, yeah. you know, uh, it fast. Was a, I mean, it was a great game. It was a perfect game. Yeah, yeah, it but it was just, game. it's so, you know, it's a small thing, yeah. right? And then I have all, you know, I have, I have a bunch of games over here stacked up, yep. but I don't want to play them. I just want to play this thing over and over again. And it was like this feeling of like, What's going on? It's that right? flow state. It's yeah. the, it was just the perfect flow game, and and honestly, the the if, if you play a lot of Robotron, Robotron's harder right. than than um, Geometry Wars. Right. But if you're good at Robotron, it's the same flow state. Sure. It's, oh yeah, yeah, is. yeah. Well, but I, I guess what I'm trying to get is, it's not just that. It's just that there was so few options for someone to play a game of that scope. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like everything was big. Yeah. Right. Like that was the only thing. So it was like. That was, it was like, you know, there was all sorts of foods available, but this yeah. is the first time I'd ever tried a dessert. Yeah. Right. And right. you're like, a good point. well, this is super interesting, right? Yeah. You know, like food could be sweet and tasty, like, you know, yep. like, um, and so that's what I mean. Like, I, it's not like I'm super into Twin Shicks. Yeah, it was just yeah. like, yeah. like, oh, wow. Like this, this is a, the scope for this game is super interesting. I mean, you know, like. You know, that's why it's called Live Arcade, right? Probably, right? right? Yeah. Because that's the thing that would remind me of, like, yes, I loved these games when I was a kid, but somehow the, the, the games industry had put us in this place where these games just didn't exist anymore right. because the, there was no business model for it. Right. Right? And, yeah. like, that's what changed. And, so. and it's funny because you can see how Live Arcade, I, I, it's a good point that being named Arcade is, is because it was supposed to be smaller experiences. It was still somewhat limited by download speeds yeah. at the time. Yeah. And it's obvious that it's the console iteration of the casual game market. Right. Right. It's like, how do we take the casual game market and make it something that would appeal to console gamers? Yep. And so it's like, well, let's just bring the arcade into the home. Yeah. And, you know, they didn't know. They really, they were making it up as they went along. Right. Yeah, and sure. then I remember um, all the drama about like, What's the what's the cap on the download size yeah. going to be? When's that going to go up? And blah blah blah. And like yeah. Anyway, you know, obviously, eventually, the what became is just like well, it's just now it's just everything. everything. Yeah. Short uh, but um, okay, so Jumpy Wars effect because you you like the visceral. I'm moving the guy around. I'm like yeah. I, I mean, I like to think that um, there's there's a lot of interfaces as a game player that um, that block that flow state. Mm-hmm. And there's an interface between what happens on the screen and your eyeballs. Your eyeballs have to understand what's happening. Mm-hmm. And there's some people who play Monaco who can't Do that. parse it. They can't parse it. Okay. Um, that has to translate into, um, especially in a, in, a, in a not first person game, it has to translate into your perception of the world state. Mm-hmm. 
So there's a there's a bus that occurs there, right, or an interface. Yeah. Um, then it the the perception of the world state then has to interface with the idea of what is what do I want to do as a player? What do I want to accomplish at a at a high level goal? So those two things have to interface with each other. And then there's the interface of how do I um, translate that to my finger movements? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then you have to actually accomplish that with your with the physical action. Right. The, the shorter you can make those interfaces, the simpler you can make those various different interfaces, the tighter that, that loop becomes. Okay. Um, and in Geometry Wars, uh, it doesn't take long before the loop disappears uh-huh. and you're just, you're in, yeah. and you've, you've fallen into the screen. Um, and with Monaco, um, given that it was a top-down game, I still wanted to find a way to immerse the player. And that's that's actually why we used a silent movie soundtrack for, for the game. Huh, okay. Because I wanted to get the player to turn on the part of their brain that's like, I need to use my imagination to fill in the gaps. Because huh, okay. it was all top-down. Right. Um, and you're looking mostly at a map. The yeah. very active-looking map, right? Mm-hmm. That is kind of hard to parse. Yes. Um, but what I was trying to do is get out of the way of the players such that they can address the strategic questions of the game without having to think about what do I need my fingers to do. Okay. Um, and I still see this problem. Most people in, for instance, first-person shooters or on console first-person shooters, most people have already trained their brains such that the interface between their fing- between what they want to do and their fingers is a pretty short interface or it's uh, a well-trained interface. Right. Um, uh, but there's still the vast majority of people on the planet haven't, haven't yeah, built that. that yeah. um, and so I still actually believe that, that um, the, the true mass market is, are, are in the games that can, um, can eliminate some of these interfaces. Right. Um, and, so, so can you talk about some of the choices you made in Monaco, like the way the controls work to like make that work better? So there wasn't, wasn't that issue? Sure. I mean, um, uh, there's no, um, someone who really doesn't know consoles at all. Mm-hmm. Um, or the first, the first time you pick up a particular console, if you've played other consoles, yeah. you still have to look at your fingers to know what is the A button or the X button or yeah. something like that. And screw the switch for, or flipping things around yeah. on you. Yeah. Um, uh, so by eliminating basically all use of the face buttons and putting um, the actions really are... The only truly necessary actions in the game are move your left analog stick to move your character. Mm-hmm. To go through a door, you just push you against just push that door against until the, door, the timer yeah. fills up. Yep. Um, and picking up coins um, mm-hmm. is just like Pac-Man. You walk yep. over them. Um, and there are some optional controls. It's an analog stick. So if you want to move slowly, you can move it halfway, but the right way to sneak is probably the left trigger. You hold the left trigger and you move at half speed, basically. Okay. Um, and then the right trigger is, uses your, whatever item you have equipped, but there's no like switch to a different item or anything along those lines. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, one of the, I do like triggers, Mm-hmm. As far as the physical input devices, mm-hmm. they're not visible to the player, and right. so um, I actually preferred the day when there when we didn't have bumper bumpers. Right. I actually i I still try to avoid bumpers entirely. Yeah. Um, they're weird. I understand uh, because yeah. it's you're asking players, 
And I see this demoing even today, you know, for tooth and tail, when I tell people to, to pull R2 or to pull the right trigger or something like that, I swear 50% of players still have to turn the controller up mm-hmm. to look at which one is the trigger and which one is the bumper. They still don't know. Right. And I'm like, oh no, that one, you right. know, and I have to point to it for them. Um, hmm. So I like the invis- the button that you can't see because it's on the opposite side of the controller. I like that because it forces the player engages um, a different part of their brain. They don't expect to be able to see it. Um, and so so it, it's an easier button to be using instinctually okay. until they add it in the bumpers. And now, now with bumpers, there's two different buttons right. that can be pressed, but they're both, but they're invisible. Mm-hmm. They're not visible to the player. They're on the other side of the controller. Um, and, and I think that that to me can for, for players that aren't hard, you know, core console players can produce a lot of confusion where there used to be a, a really, really ideal control scheme. Um, and they just needed more buttons. So they had, that's, that was the best place to add it. Um, I was listening to a, this American life recently about a guy that, um, lived as a badger. Yeah. I've listened to that one. Yeah. And he said that. He'd wear a blindfold, uh-huh. and he said when he did wear the blindfold, he could get really immersed into what it was like to live as a badger. You could mm-hmm. f- smell the different types of roots and right. things like that. But the moment he'd take the blindfold off, his his brain was so attuned to taking visual input um, and and parsing that as the primary thing. Um, that and that's why I say like. The triggers as an invisible button works really well until you force the player to actually look at it. Think about it, right. Whereas face buttons are the easiest buttons to press, for sure. But um, the player still expects to, to use their eyes to mm. know which one is which. Right. Um, and so, but games that fill up the controllers, and, and Monaco, the Monaco's control scheme was, was really in many ways a reaction against... Splinter Cell's control scheme, right. which used every freaking button, right. and some of them were context sensitive. Mm-hmm. And I, no matter how much I played that game, I was still looking at the controller to figure out which button to press in different scenarios. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was. I mean, it was, it was a good move, but like, it's crazy to think like the solution basically was like, well, we're just going to draw a controller on the screen. Yeah. Right. And like, yep. you know, like you're not going to remember. So we're just going to show you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and it's like, what you do. they, uh, I don't blame them for wanting to add buttons because, Hey, the PC had a keyboard. Yeah. Right. And, and you needed more buttons, but, um, it's not how, and I don't, I'm not trying to say that's a bad way to design, but it's not how I design. Sure. Um, because I, I, I'm a PC gamer at heart. I, mm-hmm. I like game thoughtful games. I like strategic games. I like um, weird weird games, but I'm also um, as an adult. I'm a console game player. I like I like to get into a flow state. I don't mm. like to sit at my desk when I'm done working because I work too much as it is. Uh-huh. I'm I like to play socially. Um, so I'm a I'm a console gamer that that's still a PC gamer at heart. Um, right. So it's a it's a sort of unique position to be in. Yeah. I've never gotten really over the hump where I'm like totally comfortable with like all of the buttons. On yeah, the thing. seriously. Right? It's just, I don't know. I don't think I'll ever quite get there. So yeah, I, I tend to, to I'm, I'm like, I, I'll use four face buttons, two triggers, two analog sticks, and I'm done. Right. Uh, and if, if I, I, I don't want to click an analog stick. I don't want to use a bumper. Oh, the click the stick. Oh I hate God. the click the stick. Oh my God. Oh, 
Because I'm always doing it accidentally. I'll never do it. Yeah. I'll right. never do it on purpose correctly. <laughs> because you have to, I have to like literally like look at the like click, yep. you know, make sure I'm pushing down the right way. Yeah. That, that was definitely a step too far. I don't see how that was ever. Anyway, all right. All right. Now we're sounding <laughs> like, well, now we're more like, buttons. Yeah. All right. <laughs> okay. Um, Cool. So you wanted you were really careful about your use of the controller. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I definitely the, the feeling of the way, like just the way you go through the doors, is very unique, right? Can't mm-hmm. be another game that is there's it tension that to way. it. There's right. tension to it. Um, and yeah, like you literally cannot hit the wrong button because you're not hitting a button. Right. Um, okay. Um, was that stuff like was that literally in the first prototype? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It was a. Uh, um, uh, um, it was important to me that um, because everything is so condensed and everything is time-based mm-hmm. um, in stealth movies, even it's like, there's always those, those little timing coincidences where the person walks around the corner just as yep. the, the police officer comes mm-hmm. around the other corner and, and misses the, the thief by, by a half second. Right. Um, so those little tight timing things is what drives the entire game. Um, and uh um, and even in like traditional stealth games, it's still like, you know, you're watching that guard route and he goes back and forth and you have to time it perfectly, you know, walk across here so he doesn't see you. Right. Um, so, uh, so that the, the timing based doors was, was, yeah, that was the, one of the very first things to go in. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you built the, so that first prototype, was that, was there, how much, how much of a game was there? Like, was it a few levels or like? Yeah, it was, there were. The IGF version was seven levels. It, okay. it, you could play it from start to end, mm-hmm. um, and it had a story, okay. um, uh, and four char- four character classes. Four classes. What were um, remember what they were? It was the lo- it was the locksmith, sure. the um, hacker, the cleaner, and I don't think the lookout was the lookout. Then she was. What was she? I think she was, I don't remember. Oh, I called her the prowler. Mm. She was the prowler and she was, she was, she could do physical actions faster than people. So climb into vents, Mm. um, and, um, uh, climbing related stuff. I I eventually tried to turn her into like a parkour expert so she could jump over things and stuff Uh like that. But, um, there were a lot of, uh, a lot of design problems where, you know, you could catch, the AI wouldn't be able to reach you because you could you could get into a corner behind a table that they couldn't get to and things like that. So I ended up eliminating that that okay. character and changing her to the lookout. Okay. Um, but she did retain her like passive ability to climb ladders and things like that right. faster. Okay. Um, so the game did really well in the IGF. What did uh, yeah, won the grand prize and the, the design award? Right. Yeah. Um, so obviously you must have felt. Great. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> um, was there a was there like a money award attached to it? Back there then? was. It, um, and it was not small. Uh-huh. I think it was like, was it like ten thousand dollars? Right. My I, the the design award was smaller. I think it might have been even twenty five hundred for the design award right. and ten thousand for the grand prize. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, not small. Right. But so that happened, and I guess you were like, "Okay, let's let's do this." Yeah, so that's when I like I went to Microsoft and was like, "Okay, guys, ready to go? Let's put this on XBLA." And they were like, "Nah, it's not going to sell." Oh, really? Yeah, they rejected it. Oh wow. Okay. So, were you trying to get them to like help 
fund you fund the game or you just uh, you just wanted to I just wanted contract? well I wanted a first party deal but I didn't need funding okay. I had I I was already talking to Indie Fund at the time about getting about funding the game oh, to okay. to get it to a, a bigger cuz at, at prior to the IGF I was thinking I was going to release it on X, Xbox Live Indie Games you know Xbox Oh IG. right yeah 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 um oh, right, because then, it was XNA Yeah yeah and then after the IGF I was like okay this deserves a right a broader release right. um and uh and so microsoft turned it down i actually went they let me pitch again which normally publishers if you right. if they turn you down once aren't going to let you pitch again but right. they did and they let me pitch again and they still turned it down um <laughs> and um wow and so i but you find did you sign with indie fund relatively yeah, shortly I think, after the I think IGF? just before yeah yeah right at, just shortly after the IGF I okay. signed with any fund and um, how like did that get how much time did that give you to work on the game well they gave me a hundred thousand dollars okay um well not not in a lump sum I don't right. think but um uh um so I uh started working with a porting house to port the game to a C plus plus so that we could get the game onto the, the PlayStation okay. um the PlayStation 3 okay and then, um, like just as I was about to sign the contract to with Sony on this, the um, the hack happened. Remember the the PSN hack or the PSN oh, yeah. um, the PSN got got hacked and and it was down for a week and right. they lost literally like half their audience and that didn't come back. Right. Um, and I <laughs> set that contract aside. <laughs> And I went and it ended up working with Majesco to publish the game on XBLA. Okay. Um, and then self-published on Steam. Okay. Um, it did... It On XBLA, uh, so coming up to our release date... It, now, from that point forward, it took a long time because we'd done this big old port. Mm. I built an online... I built an online... I rebuilt the, the visibility mechanics to try and make it more marketable because yeah. of the Microsoft rejections. I was like, I need to make this more marketable. Oh, that's where that came from, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, was, I mean, in, in my memory, it was like a Splunky thing. It was. It was blocky visuals. Well, I mean, in the sense that like you had like a prototype. Oh yeah, right. And then I, I thought basically you just built the whole thing over. I, I kind of did. Okay. Yeah. All the levels were rebuilt. Right. Um, uh, it was a lot of levels. I built the online stuff. Right. Um, rebuilt the visuals, had artists do a bunch of stuff, rewrote the story, and the bones of the story are similar. Um, and um, basically made a much, much bigger version sure. of the game. Yeah. Um, okay. So Majesco published, was going to publish on XBLA, mm -hmm. and Steam was taken off then, so you're, you're yep. going to do so, it that way. Yeah, Monaco, it came out just before Steam went nuts right they, before steam opened the floodgates before right. Greenlight. yeah um so we, we were kind of one of the last ones in the door in terms right. of pre-greenlight yeah, um, yeah, yeah. but yeah the, about a day i think the day two days before um our launch date we'd already passed certification with xbox and i start getting word back from reviewers that when they try and play four-player games online it instantly disconnects okay i'm like oh no so as it turns out, there were uh, diff there was a basically there was a, a significant difference in the packet structure between um, the uh, developer version of XBLA and the live retail version of XBLA. There was like a different header size or something along those okay. lines, and um, it was uh, it was basically making the game unplayable. Right. From, 
So I had to delay the Xbox version by, by a week, but my release date was already set. So Xbox version came out like a week after the Steam version right. and it missed all the glowing reviews and everything. And, and so it, it really, really hurt the Xbox sales. That's too bad. Um, uh, but it killed on Steam. So what are you going to... I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. not going to complain. Yeah, I mean, probably be better for you if they buy it on Steam anyway. Right? So, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about the actual like development and design of of uh, of Monaco a little bit. Then. Sure. Yeah. Um, 